Let's pray as we come together. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have. We thank you for um, just your presence in this place today, even though we're not worshipping in a way that, that we want to, in a way that we desire. But we thank you for this chance that we can gather um, as a congregation. We thank you for this chance that we're able to be in this place. We pray for those of us who are at home as well. We know that your spirit and you, Lord, are an omnipresent God who's everywhere. And we pray that wherever we are, that you speak into our lives. And that your words will pierce us and touch us. That indeed we'll become more and more mature in you. We pray that today as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians, that Lord, you open our eyes to your truth. Allow us, Lord, to... Know what it means to deal with differences, to deal with grievances as a mature Christian. Help us to put aside our offenses, put aside our baggage, and grant us the unity, Lord, to move together as one body, as one church, as your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we have studied 1 Corinthians thus far, the, the concept of judgment is something that's been very apparent, right? It's something that we've explored at length. We started by looking at how we are not judged by the world, but we are judged by God. And that means that we should learn to rely on spiritual wisdom. And we have seen that when it comes to leaders, then that the judgment of leaders also belongs to God. That we should not take it upon ourselves and begin causing divisions by deciding which leaders to follow, deciding which leaders we prefer, and then trying to side with them but instead to recognize that we are not as much listening to them as we are listening to God speaking through them. And we reference the example, right, of, of David in the court of King Saul. Where David in the court of King Saul, even though Saul was twisted and he was sinful, David continued to serve faithfully in the king's court. And in God's time, David rose to the throne and judgment came upon Saul. But through it all, David maintained, do not touch the Lord's anointed. And he left that judgment to the Lord. And last week we spoke about how we judge sin. right? How the heart of judging sin is not to excommunicate the person or not to pass a judgment that cannot be returned, but really to bring the sinner back into repentance, to purge the sin from the community and from that sinner's life. And how each of us as a maturing community have a role to play in challenging each other that way, in confronting each other and spurring each other on. And today we'll look at another type of judging, to look into how a Christian community ought to handle disputes and mediate grievances. So we begin with just eight verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that go like this. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? 
to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I don't know how many of us have visited the Apple store in Jewel. Um, it looks absolutely magnificent for anyone of us who've been there. First class service, right? One of the Chinese congregation, one of our colleagues in the Chinese congregation just told me that recently that it reminds him of a church. You know, you walk in, bright lights, all white. The tables are also really cool. You swipe your hand across and the sockets flip up from the table. And everyone's so friendly. And you know, as all Apple fans know, right? When, when we have some issues with our Apple products, we don't go to any old shop around the street or worse, go to Microsoft, we will go with our issues to the same place that understands how our things work. We go back to the place that has the better grasp of the products that we have. And what's more, when we go back to such a place that's familiar with what we have, we know that they are trusted and the repair that they have is trusted for time to come. And by equal measure, whenever we see someone who has an Apple product go to a non-Apple store, we wonder to ourselves, what are they thinking? And that's sort of the point that Paul is bringing across here in verse 1 when he writes, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of a saint? See, Paul begins by asking, when you have an issue with someone, how do you deal with it? Then he questions and he implicitly reminds the Corinthian church that all of you do not belong to the world. You belong to Christ. We belong to Christ. And therefore, we live by a different standard. We live by different values. We live by different workings. And if that's the case, why would you bring your issues to someone on the outside who doesn't understand the Word of God? And see, it's important to understand here what Paul says by, what Paul means rather by grievance. Right? The, the Greek word that Paul employs here translates directly to having a matter, which is a pretty generic term, but it gives us a weight of what Paul is describing. Right? He's not describing that, that um, all cases should be handled, handled by Christians. Right? He's not attempting some coup to overthrow criminal law or that all laws of the land should be subject to the church or anything like that but rather it refers to disputes, perhaps even up to civil disputes about property. But that idea of having a matter against someone and in a way that's more relevant to us, we can relate it to how we have conflicts, disagreements, disputes with one another. Right? It can be from the smallest of things, or from, from how cell groups should be structured, to um, what songs we should sing, to where we should sit in the congregation, to the pastor never greet me, or he steal my favourite parking lot. And remember that Paul's heart throughout the whole of 1 Corinthians is that they may live as saints. And Paul is thus bringing this issue up because in the way that they were dealing with this issue, they were falling short of what it means to live as saints. And they were solving their problems with the wrong standards as well by bringing it before the world. And so Paul's guiding principle is that Christian communities ought to deal with their issues internally. Don't bring it to court and let the unrighteous deal with it. 
right? To once again go back to the analogy, if we are speaking in iOS, the world speaks in Android. Whereas a Christian community that is maturing, deal with our grievances in-house and stay united. And he puts this principle forward for three reasons. The first is that Paul points to our Christian future. Paul points to our Christian future. Right, the verses go, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? And here, as Paul talks about this Christian future, he actually draws on the very teachings of Jesus. Right, where in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said, Truly I tell you at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is then affirmed in 2 Timothy 2, 12, when Paul reminds Timothy that those who endure will reign with Christ. In other words, Paul writes and challenges us towards the time to come. Paul challenges us to focus on the Christian future. He says, this is who you are destined to be in Christ. If we are truly following Christ, this is the role that we will play. And therefore, as a transformed people who are called to be saints, who are maturing every single day, you must have it in you to judge the trivial matters of this world. But notice then, and I think this is important, that Paul's underlying principle here is who the Christian community should be. Because it is clear that it takes not only Christians who are serious about their faith, not only Christians who have decided to follow Christ, right, but Christians who are maturing in faith to oversee and judge these matters. That it is predicated on a maturing Christianity. That in the wider picture of this letter, as we think back to what we have taught and what we have shared in the previous few weeks, this comes as Paul challenges the people to move to solid food and away from milk. That Paul speaks in the context of maturity because if we truly believe in Christ, if we have made our firm decision to follow Christ, then it is only logical that we mature in Christ. Because true belief results in action. It's not just about doing, 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 because it's not action alone that matters. But if we have true belief, it will be reflected in how we live our life. And growth and maturity will follow. And this in itself, again, is a reminder that we are to live our lives in the direction of what is to come. Not in the direction of the here and now, not in the rootedness of this world, but towards Christ, towards our Christian future of Christ that's transforming us and changing us from glory to glory. See, Paul recognizes that if we have truly made this decision to follow Christ, we live not in the light of this world, not by the influences of this world, but we live towards Christ and we seek to be more Christ-like every single day. That our decision to follow Christ is not simply a ticket to get to heaven, right? When, when John in, in the gospel writes, to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become the children of God. That word receive is not a one-time transaction. It's not passive as the English language tends to, to, to hint to us. But it is an active word where we are active 
actively going forward to receive and to become more and more Christ-like every single day. And each of these points towards our Christian future. Our future with Christ upon His return, where those who truly believe, those who are Christ's people, will enjoy life eternal as co-heirs of an everlasting kingdom. So put in context, Paul is saying, if this is your Christian future, then as the church of Christ who are destined to reign with Him, can you not settle these disputes amongst yourselves? And Paul's second reason is then where he harks into Christian identity, into who we are. Verses 4 to 5 goes, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? It's interesting that Paul uses the phrase, no standing in the church. Because if we think about that, when we say that someone has no standing, it means that the matter at hand has nothing to do with that person. Right? It's like if you, going back to the Apple analogy, it's like if you own a Lenovo laptop and it spoils, you decide to sue Apple because your Lenovo laptop spoils. Right? And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Where Christian life is apart from the world. Christian life has nothing to do with how the world lives. We are, live, we are called to live set apart from the world. And this is not some anarchist, anti-government rhetoric, right? Because it is of proper Christian character to be subject to the law of the land. But Paul is alluding back to the fact that as Christians, we live a life, we are called to live a life that's different from the world. Where we live a life where we are accountable to God. And so if the world does not understand us, if the world does not understand us, why do we have, when we have disputes, bring it before the world? See, we must realize that the undergirding factor of Paul's message is not, you are a people of Christ, so you can do whatever you like. That's what it means to have freedom. The undergirding factor of Paul's message is that precisely because we are a people of Christ, because we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people of Christ's own possession, we are to model to the world what godly life is like. And if we are to be the model to the world of what a life in Christ is like, then why are we subjecting ourselves to a completely different system that isn't part of ours? And this speaks to the very core of Christian identity because that, this has been the call of Israel right from the Old Testament all the way till now. Whereby all the ceremonies and everything that they performed that were instituted in Israel, it's not because God is some mafan God who needs all these things, but it is to show the rest of the world what it looks like to be a nation in obedience, what it looks like to be fully subjected to Christ, what it looks like, the blessings, the security, the brilliance of a nation that is subjected to Christ. It is telling the whole world, come and see who this God is. That we are supposed to model to the world what life in Christ is supposed to look like. A life that is constant in communion with God. And that is our Christian identity. And here then Paul harks back to that issue of maturity. He says, I say this to your shame, that no one among you is wise enough to settle a dispute. 
Again, Paul very clearly tells the church that Christians ought to have the maturity to deal with grievances. To deal with it with one another within the church community. To look at every issue from a godly perspective and deal with it that way. And of course, we must note that it isn't a checkbox, right? That if we simply don't bring um, our grievances to a court, haha, it's done, it's, 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 we are safe, we are living a godly life. It's, it's actually far beyond that. Because the meaning of it goes deeper than that. It's not just the literal taking a, not taking a case before a civil court. But even for ourselves, as we look at these issues, the reason Paul is challenging the church to be the ones who mediate this situation is because we are supposed to approach these situations subject to the wisdom of the Spirit, subject to spiritual wisdom, to look at it from Christ's perspective. To pursue peace as part of the wider unity of the church. And that is why growing in maturity then becomes essential. That it's essential we grow in our maturity in the faith. It is essential we grow in the direction of where Christ is calling us. It is essential we grow to be more Christ-like every day. And it begins by growing in our maturity of the Word. Right? Not just the knowledge of the Word, but how the Word affects us day to day. Now, I was talking to one of our youths recently and he reflected how he's realised across the past few months that, and I quote this, how we live our lives flows from our knowledge of the Word. That our maturity is dependent on getting in tune with the Word of God, losing ourselves in His Word, learning what it teaches us, and in that way, finding out who God truly says we are. And practically speaking, what does this look like? Well, I'll, I'll quote BBTC's senior pastor, Pastor Daniel Fu, as, as a little model that he has here towards maturing in the Word. We begin by receiving, right? We open our Bibles and we pray that the Spirit opens our eyes to the Word of God. And then we don't just end there, we meditate on this truth. And what it means to meditate is to chew, to not just read it and accept it as principle, but let the words of the Bible linger in our hearts, in our minds throughout the day, like a cow, right, who, who chews the food and then they have more than one stomach, so they spit it out again and they chew it again and again and again and again and again. And then finally, to confess. Confess how, first of all, yes, how we have fallen short of God's standard. And then from there, it doesn't just end by saying, God, we, we have fallen short of your standard. We confess it in another way where we declare it in action. Where we confess the truth of God's lives through the way that we live. And through it all, we allow the Spirit to shape us as we discover who we are in Christ. Then Paul speaks to the Corinthian church as a people who ought to be maturing in the faith. In fact, Paul almost takes it as a given that they should be maturing. And as Christians who are maturing in the faith, who find identity in Christ, this is why Paul says it is in our Christian identity, it is part of who we are, that we can settle our disputes in-house. And at this point, of course, it would be useful to consider what it should look like. When we have disputes, no matter how big, how small, how minor, to deal with it in-house can simply be, hey, I didn't like what you said or I didn't like how you did this earlier and this is how I feel about it and speak in, in, in love to one another and sharpen each other that way. 
that we learn to live in truth and in authenticity with one another in that way. Right? Where, where, we, we, where if things are really bugging us, we don't just sweep things under the carpet. If you sweep it under the carpet in the sense of it doesn't bother you and you can let it go, that's fine because it doesn't affect the unity of the church. But if you do it and you get bitter and sore and in maturity, go speak to someone. Right? Go speak to that person and tell them truth in love. I remember someone coming up to me a few years ago and saying that they didn't exactly like a joke that I cracked and I appreciated that, right? And, and I apologise and we move on, right? That's Christian maturity. And maybe along the way, it's something bigger than just simply a joke. It's, it's an issue to do with, with the church. It's an issue to do with, with different impressions or we hear this from other people, we hear this from that person, we hear this, we hear that and then miscommunication goes all the way through and, and perhaps we spoke things that we genuinely believed to be true at a certain time and later found that it was not. The way of a mature Christian when it, to deal with that, it's not, I'm going to block you out of my life, I'm going to leave and never see you again. It's not, I don't want to deal with you anymore. But rather to be willing to come to the table and talk it out, to describe your hurts, to identify the misunderstandings, to apologize if needed, but at all times to keep our eyes on the peace that Christ wants for His church. And of course, everyone needs their space and everyone needs a little bit of time. But as Christians, it should mean for us two things. One, that we continue to desire to come back together. And two, that we play our part to reach out. And you know, this is something that I experienced personally, right? A while ago, a little hoo-ha went on and I felt recently that it was time to try again, to try to reach out. And so I sent a message, no reply, never mind. I'll continue waiting and praying and being sensitive to the Spirit for the time that is right. But let me share this as well. That ever since I played that part or reached out, there's a weight and an attachment to that issue that isn't there anymore. That the burden towards that issue just feels so much lighter. And don't take that to mean that we reach out and have peace to assuage our own feelings of guilt. But when we play our part in Christ, we sense a release from the Spirit and we trust and entrust the rest of it back to God. See, coming back to this passage, if we look at it, there is something, this is something picked up by, by a theologian, right, where Paul actually issues a two-layered challenge. Where his first challenge is to say that if there are disputes among believers, settle them amongst believers. And the reason for this is that he points towards Christian future and Christian identity. But it goes deeper than that. In the last two verses, in verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, or the last four verses of what we just read towards the end, he actually issues a deeper challenge, which is to say, why not just let it go? Why not choose to keep the peace among the church for a very simple reason? If we bring our disputes before the world, then what sets us apart from them? If we are going to behave in the same way as the world, why bother calling ourselves Christian? See, we must know that Paul is in fact saying that actually there shouldn't be disputes among Christians because we are one in Christ. In our fallenness, when we have disputes, deal with it in-house because of Christian witness and unity. And the third reason for Paul setting out this principle is Christian witness. Verse 6, 
But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. We sang that song two weeks ago, right? Okay, I can't sing because of COVID. But it goes, we are one in the bond of love. We have joined our spirit with the spirit of God. We are one in the bond of love. Right? And this cannot simply be lip service. There's no point in singing it for the sake of singing it. It is supposed to be a truth of our lives that we are one in the bond of love. And Paul's tone gets pretty aggressive here. He goes, brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. We can hear the disappointment in Paul's voice twice. Already that brother goes to law against another is devastating. And then we let it affect our Christian witness. We let it go before unbelievers. And Paul says this cannot be. He continues to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. That the church is not united is already a defeat to Christian witness. Pastor Darren mentioned a few weeks back about Nikki Gumbo's devotion that Carl shared in the leadership group. Right, where when Nicky Gumbo spoke of how he met someone who didn't want to become a Christian because Christians themselves were so divided. And that may not sound like much, but when we reflect on that, just think about the impact of that and how piercing it is that the very vessel that Christ made to reach out to the world in the way that we exist and in the existence that we have, we are pushing people away. That the very people who are supposed to go and tell the world of God's truths in our witness have just condemned a single soul for all eternity. Thus Paul challenges, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, what's more valuable to us? our witness to the people around the world, our witness to our fellow Christians, what's more valuable to us than the unity of the church? Or do we see that our personal rights, do we see that our way, do we see that what we thought was right is more important? Because even doing the right thing the wrong way has elements in it that are not right. And we cannot live by the worldly standards of the ends justifies the means. And again, this points us back to the message of the cross. It points us back to spiritual wisdom. Which one do we follow? Are we willing to give up our rights for the sake of the unity of the body? And Paul has much to say about the issue of personal rights, but we'll tackle that in a few weeks. And so earlier we spoke about how we have to live in a different way from the world, for the world to come and see. But by that same measure, this different way of life, this unity that we are supposed to share as a body of Christ, is actually a key platform for us to go and tell. John writes it this way, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Our key in our witness to the world is not the pizzazz and the glam of throwing money at things and making things look nice, but it is the community that we share. It is the love that we have for one another. 
right? If we think about the church in Acts as, as we celebrate the churches in Acts, growth in number, yes, you could say that what, what Peter did as he preached the gospel unashamed in Acts chapter 2 and thousands came to know Christ, that was an evangelistic rally. But by equal measure, when the part in Acts says that the Lord added to their number daily, all they were doing was rallying together in community. Being in true fellowship with one another. And we need to realize that it is a matter of Christian witness that we deal with our grievances in our community. So as we move forward in our journey to be a healthy church, maturing in faith, moving into solid food, this is one area where we need to grow. Not to take the easy way out and leave everything behind and leave and just cut people out of our lives but to learn to speak truth in love to one another, to learn to speak into each other's lives, to be willing to admit our error, but at all times to maintain the unity of the body. Because it is in this way that we mature as Christians, that we live towards our eternal destiny as co-heirs, that we live up to who we are being made to be in Christ, that we live up to what Christ has died for us for. To come back to Him as His sons and daughters called into this world to witness to those around us. Let's pray. God, we thank You for this word. We know that in our lives we have fallen. We know that in our lives we have not done right. We know that in our lives there are times when we have chosen to take the easy way out. When we have shrugged the responsibility that you have called us to in this ministry of reconciliation. Where we have defended and if we are honest with ourselves, where we have defended our own selfish motives in thinking and relying solely on what we thought was right. Where we have put our selfish desires above our call, above the unity of our church. Lord, we come before you and we repent of our sins. Teach us and grant us the courage, Lord to learn to deal with the grievances that we have with one another, and not to sweep things under the carpet, but to live in life of, a life of authenticity with one another, that when something really bugs us, we speak. But all the more, Lord, soften our hearts to learn how to let go. Soften our hearts to maintain the unity of the church by taking the attitude of why not rather be wrong, why not rather be defrauded. Teach us how to live a life in this way. Help us, Lord, to mature in this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to play this song just to give us a little bit of time to reflect. It's about three minutes, and in this time, if there's anyone that comes to mind, perhaps you want to pray over the situation, you want to reach out to that person, send them a message or, or, or whatever. But as the song plays, just use it to reflect to do a deeper level of personal confession.